Hello and welcome to Setting the Stage. Episode 6, Lloyd and Calgrad. Okay, um, you want to get started? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, uh, so you start off by introducing yourself and uh, who you are outside of D&D. Sure, so uh, my name's Lloyd. I am a 24-year-old dungeon master uh, from London, UK, if you can't tell by the accent. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been DMing for about four years um, with the same group. Uh, before that, I kind of just played very casually like with some, some people at sort of secondary school. Um, outside of D&D, I'm a software engineer. So I work for a startup um, actually based out in San Francisco, um, like the Bay Area, but they've got an office out in London. Um, yeah, I, that's sort of my day job. I'd say like outside of work, outside of D&D, I do a bit of climbing. I'm really into music. Uh, I go to a lot of gigs and concerts and stuff like that. Cool. Um, do you play? Do you play your own stuff? Uh, not well enough for anyone else to hear it. Uh, I, I I own a guitar and I own a keyboard, um, but uh, yeah, just kind of fiddling. I've never really done anything super serious. Cool. cool. Yeah, like I guess that's kind of the the basics. Um, right. Sweet. Yeah, my my dad is from. Well, I'm from the Bay Area, and my dad worked in software. So. Ah, oh, cool. Whereabouts are you based? Are you are you still out there or? Uh, you're still West Coast, right? Right, yeah. Um, so I, I grew up in Menlo Park in Palo Alto in the Bay Area. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, the house I had in Palo Alto was like two blocks from um, what used to be Facebook's uh, campus. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, my dad didn't work there, but um, there were people that drove by every day that did work there. <laughs> um, and uh, now I live in Davis, which is about mm, two hours away from the Bay Area on the way to California's capital, Sacramento. Oh, cool. Nice area. Yeah, yeah, it's great. And really easy to bike, unlike most American cities. So. <laughs> yeah, everything seems very spread out over there. It was a, it was a big shock for me coming from uh, what is quite a dense city in London. Yeah, uh, well, well, we'll get there. You're about a few millennia ahead of us in urbanization. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> and uh, to be fair, San Francisco is actually pretty dense, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's why they have the housing issue there is it's sort of they're, they're out of space to build unless they knock something down. Yeah, man, I thought rent prices here in London were crazy, but um, kind of takes the biscuit over there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Um, uh, what got you started with D&D? That's a really good question. Um, so playing, it was kind of... I'd always been into sort of generic geeky stuff like gaming and uh, like fantasy, like kind of intro fantasy you know like lord of the rings song of ice and fire mm-hmm. like that kind of stuff right um and i kind of did a lot of like more geeky side of gaming i met a friend of mine who was quite into it um he kind of said that one of the teachers at our school was was running this club you know you should you should come along and, and give it a go and uh, we're playing like th- that very very um loose 3.5 and I just really enjoyed it. I, I, I've always kind of loved uh, being a bit of a drama queen. So yeah. I was yeah. kind of dive in and, and pl- I think I played like this mad scientist halfling um, who was obsessed with his crossbows. Um, 
and then the kind of mathsy side of it, I've always been really big into maths like the mathsy side of me um especially in 3.5 found this like amazing avenue to like optimize to the max um classic kind of min max guy okay um so uh yeah i, I t- kind of took the chance and was like spent loads of time reading around it and got really really invested in this one character both yeah. from a role play and a like optimization point of view um mostly yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty hard for a crossbow user in 3.5 yeah I, yeah I, I mean i don't remember exactly what we did but i think um we kind of got given a couple of homebrew items which before we kind of dived into the the min maxi stuff were kind of fine they were maybe a bit overpowered but the moment i started combining it with like a bunch of feats and stuff the the kind of cracks in the design of these homebrew items started to show Uh, um and i ended up doing i think we were like level nine and i was doing like 80 damage around or something like that um yeah and i mean it was kind of stupid like the plot was really fun and made up and like it was more about the kind of hijinks and and silly situations than than like a proper dungeon crawl. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I feel like most people play that way. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that, and then um, didn't really think much of it except a little bit of kind of playing with with that group of of guys from school. Um, we kind of did a couple of generic RPG stuff, uh, and we it's like a group that I game with a lot. Like we do a lot of video games. Um, like strategy like Civ and, and E4 and stuff like that. Um but then four years ago was kind of the, the real big turning point. Um so a lot of my a, a different group of friends from school but still school friends. Uh-huh. Uh, we'd all kind of gone to our separate universities and then we'd come back every Christmas for to spend time with our families and we all lived very close. And we were, we'd always have that sort of boredom of We'd be a, a couple of weeks at home. It's the countryside, not London, so there's not a lot to do. Right. And trying to find something to do. And one, one of these friends just turned to me and said, oh, hey, Lloyd, um, how would you feel about running like a little D&D night for us? And, you know, we'll have some drinks and it'll be funny. Um, and it's a, a group of people who, by and large, had not really explored the kind of geeky side of stuff. Um, kind of what I'd from a D&D perspective, call your sort of av- average Joe. Um, you know, a couple of gamers there, but but other than that, nothing nothing very geeky. And that's what I did. I kind of made, kind of spoke to everyone, said, you know, what kind of character would you want to play? Um, and I kind of only planned for it to be a couple of sessions over that sort of Christmas period. And the plan was for me to, to kind of play this long con on my friends and secretly have them playing out the plot of a shrek prequel oh. um so the idea was that um they were like a group of prisoners who were kind of offered a you know execution or suicide mission a la suicide squad kind of uh vibe and their mission was to track down the beast in the east um and the kind of setting was this this fantasy world where magic users and magical creatures were outlawed for some reason. Um, and this beast in the East they had to go and find and, and bring to justice was just going to be Shrek. And that was kind of the punchline. Um, okay. And yeah, so we kind of did that as a joke and we got a couple of sessions in and obviously we didn't get very far in those couple of sessions because it got instantly derailed by a bunch of drunken teenage or late teenage British youths wanting to get up to mischief i was gonna say the the typical uh country lifestyle yeah so like you know we we were 
you know, didn't get very far in the plot, but kind of had a good time. And, and everyone was like, oh, this, this is really fun. Like, can we keep doing this? And this was back in 2018. So what we did was we did two sessions that, that Christmas and then kind of put it on pause for a year. And then the following Christmas, we did another couple of sessions. Um, and it was just kind of a fun Christmas activity at that point. But then December, no, March 2020 rolls around. Right. Um, and of course, life kind of uh, changed quite a lot for all of us. And we were mostly coming towards the end of our time at university, or maybe some of us had graduated already. Um, but obviously we had, we had a ton more free time on our hands and nothing to do and nothing to talk about because none of us were doing anything. Right. We kind of thought, hey, like I, I said to them, you know, we've all kind of enjoyed this Dungeons and Dragons thing. Like, why don't we make it a bit more serious? Like, not serious in tone necessarily, but, you know, let's actually kind of get into it a bit more and do it more often. Mm-hmm. Um, and then everyone just got really, really, really into it. Like even my friends that weren't really big into gaming even um, just kind of it was all we talked about for, for months because that summer there was nothing else to do. Um, and then obviously as things started to open up again, we're still still playing super regularly. Um, we're all sort of very busy 20-somethings living in London, most of us. Um, so we're kind of playing about two sessions a month maybe. Um, or at least I am because um, I've got 11 players. Right. So uh, we kind of ended up very quickly splitting them up and sending them all on separate quests. Um, and it kind of plays out a little bit like, uh, we, we've kind of likened it to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, or as it's been affectionately dubbed, the Lloyd Cinematic Universe. Uh, all right. Um, so kind of everyone's off on their own quest, but then they'll have like crossover episodes or like people will like meet up at like a central guild or whatever and then sort of rearrange the group so everyone still gets, kind of gets to see everyone but maybe not all at the same time gotcha um but the, th- the thing the thing the splitting up was actually an accident um in the in our what might have been our final session when the group finally met shrek um of course by that point they'd kind of got the uh, heavy-handed clues i was dropping them um that it was in fact shrek i think i had to drop a talking donkey in before they realized it was shrek Oh, okay. um that was like they didn't pick up on the gingerbread man that the um red riding hood and the wolf they didn't pick up on the three bears and then Mar- anyway like, all the little shrek clues i was dropping that they, they kind of missed them um but yeah we got there and then there was a kind of debate in the group about whether to kill shrek or not because if they killed shrek that would get them all their freedom um but equally they were like oh hang on this is like a a like a guy living in a swamp who's kind of just being persecuted. Um, and all of the group decided to save Shrek, except for one um, who started trying to kill him. And then the impulsive barbarian of the group just turned around and tried to kill the other player. Um, and being the inexperienced DM that I was, I thought, yeah, that's funny. Let's try it. Um, the other guy got away, the one that was being attacked, who wanted to kill Shrek. And then secretly joined up with the crown. And we ended up with this like long few months of the, the party being split in two and actively working against each other. Um, and that made everyone just like love it. Um, yeah, that's cool. Which was really fun. Yeah, I kind of added like a nice like competitive edge and, and made it feel a bit more 
alive. Like the, I think the players really started to get a sense of the fact that they were running the show a little bit and not just me. Right. Well, that's that's good. <laughs> um, yeah, that sounds pretty interesting. Um, and I feel like if you're gonna have player conflict and not be like a central focus, having it in a like a climax session, like when they they find the beast in the east, makes perfect sense. Yeah, exactly. And then we did have like what we call the season two of uh, the 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 show that is this campaign was the the PvP overarching bit. And to be honest, I think it was mishandled by me um, because it did culminate in uh, like a, a big betrayal scene. It was, it was a great session. We had this like wonderful betrayal um, where this player came back into the fold and was like, oh, I'm really sorry. Like, um, let's all be friends again. And then kind of betrayed them again and ki- actually killed another player. Um, and then subsequently that player himself was killed by another one. And then now everyone's back on the same, everyone's characters are on the same side. But um, yeah, it was a fun little kind of experiment from my end. Like I didn't really know, I mean, how to do anything really, but um, a nice little trial by fire in handling player conflict. Um, but yeah, definitely the climaxes, like you said, like the Beast in the East and that, that big betrayal scene um, were probably some of the most fun sessions we've had over the nearly four years we've been playing this. Um, did you bring in uh, Puss in Boots and Prince Charming into the second season? <laughs> I didn't. Um, although I think one of my favorite NPCs was Lord Farquaad. Um, actually, it was kind of a bit sad when he died. Um, because spo- Sorry, spoilers, he did die. Um, oh, well, I think it's uh, by a dragon. Not quite. So um, I kind of tried to flip it on its head a little bit where, yes, he was persecuting magic users. But from his perspective... He was kind of doing like a necessary evil. Uh-huh. Um, so what the players didn't know at the time, but have since learned, is that the reason him and his um, sort of forebears were persecuting magic users was because in this uh, sort of realm that this is set in, um, that the weave is very unstable. And the more magic users there are, the more likely um, like evil or calamitous events are to occur. Okay. And this uh, Farquad or my version of Farquad had actually lost his entire family to like a, a magical explosion when he was a boy. Um, and from his perspective, what he was doing was he was offering every magic user either exile or death because they just couldn't be in the country. Okay. And, and he wasn't happy about it, but he kind of saw himself as having no other choice. All right, so that sort of sets up uh, an epilogue to that plot where they have a new problem to deal with. That's exactly exactly. So um, they actually ended up kind of leading a revolution um, at the head of a big group of major, like underground mages, who were kind of hidden from the. So sounding um, like Dragon Age a little bit. A little bit, yeah. And then um, we got to this at, at the sort of climax of the revolution. Um, they. Uh, kind of brought down this anti-magic field that was over the castle, um, which took obviously some of the big NPC magic users out of the equation because they had to kind of focus on this ritual, essentially. Um, And then at that exact moment, the main villain and a dragon both attacked. Um, So we had to, like... Because obviously I I wanted to run the climaxes without having, like, 11 players because it's just too much, like, people get bored. Um, so we had part of the group dealing with the the head of the revolution, um, and like sort of facing down Farquad, and dealing with the um, 
the main villain who was there to steal something and then once the anti-magic field came down and then the other half of the group dealing with the dragon attack gotcha. um so sadly he didn't get eaten by a dragon um but he did get quite unceremoniously decapitated by the same impulsive barbarian that uh caused the the party split in the first place um but yeah, it was great. It was great fun. And a lovely little moral conflict for the players who are now having to deal with tons and tons of evil creatures and stuff turning up because of um, the end of the persecution of magic users. And you said, you are you still using 3.5 for this? No, so um, yeah, I didn't actually say it. This campaign has all been 5e um, because I kind of, when I initially said like, oh, you know, I'll do a little session for us. Um, I kind of had a look, found 5e. I figured it was uh, it was new to me, but um, it looked like the easiest thing to kind of introduce people to, mm-hmm. um, especially if people not super comfortable with um, like pen and paper RPGs and stuff like that. Oh yeah, definitely. That's what they were intending with the design of it. Exactly, and um, yeah, like uh, while I, I have kind of poked around it and found the holes in the system, um, we've kind of been slowly patching them up from our group's perspective with just like the occasional house rule um over the years but but by and large we, we find that 5e kind of does the job for us um because cool. uh yeah ev- everyone in my group kind of approaches the game in a different way um and it does kind of work as a decent sort of one size fits all as has been my experience at least um i don't know how you feel about it um well, where I was going with that is uh, you mentioned like the weave being weakened, um, and the the explanation for fourth edition why so many people had their like powers changed was that uh, I think Mistra had died and the weave yeah. had been changed, and there was a representation of that in fourth edition called Spell Plague. Um, oh no, I'm not I'm not familiar. Yeah, where people could develop like weird magical powers that were tied to it, and there were like spell plague monsters that popped up as well. It sounded like mechanically it would fit very well with that idea. Oh wow, I might have to. I mean, I'm sure my players are currently listening, so I'll. I'll uh, so for those of you at home, don't look this up. But <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, that sounds like a great a great source for some mechanics for uh, the the sort of closing of the campaign. Yeah, and um, so like uh. Fifth edition has archetypes for the characters that you know they get their subclass, um, like Oathbreaker Paladin or whatever. Um, and in a uh, fourth edition, they had a similar thing um, where you could actually choose Spell Plague as your archetype for any class. Oh, that's cool. Um, and then there there was enough like different things you could choose from within the the archetype that you could um, make it work for most classes. Probably not all of them. Yeah, I've heard really good things about 4E from a like mechanical perspective as a whole. Um, I've not really looked too much into it, but um, it seems like one of those things that people hated when it came out and then have kind of grown to love over time. I, I don't know how you feel about it. Um, uh, I I liked it when it came out. Um, I think it the a lot of the criticisms against it are some of them are legitimate that it's it's basically just World of Warcraft, um, but uh i would say fifth edition actually kept that with the idea of like short rests getting new stuff back that came out in fourth edition yeah whereas in third edition you, you didn't have any of that um and long resting is pretty much the same so that hasn't really changed um yeah uh so that was that was good um it made everybody every class kind of act the same with the way the powers worked where you, you just chose like 
short rest powers and long rest powers. Um, and that was, that was kind of it. Um, so I can see why people thought from outside the system that there's no player choice to differentiate characters. Uh, but my experience when you're actually playing the session is that's completely not true. There's plenty of character choice that influences what you're doing. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. I, I think I, like this might be the final push over the edge I need to, for me to actually dive into some of the 4E resources for inspiration. I don't think I'll be able to convince my group to, to convert to another system this late in the game. But um, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's very useful for inspiration, uh, especially because the, the monsters that are available in 4th edition, um, they're, they're very easy to still use in 5th edition, I'd say. Um, okay. Obviously, you need to alter the... Because 4th edition isn't bounded accuracy, you need to alter that portion. Yeah. Um, but just the idea of the, like, the different little powers they have um yeah so that's like, really uh, cool yeah like uh goblins in in fifth edition there's like basically just one type of goblin um but in fourth edition there's like 10 or 20 to represent like this goblin goes in and like draws people attention with the shield but still has like the little goblin tactics thing it does where it hops yeah around. i i think the the fifth edition monster manual has been one of the most disappointing resources like I mean, I, I'm sure you've heard this elsewhere, but like I have kind of found that the default monsters in fifth edition have just been like a sack of hit points. Yeah. Um. So I mean, luckily there's a lot of people online who are doing a lot of work to make their own. Uh, I don't know how. Like I, I've drawn a lot of inspiration from like Matt Colville's action-oriented monsters. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I've heard a, good about those. Yeah, there's a ton of people like making them and publishing them on Reddit and stuff like that. Um. So I I do kind of steal a lot thankfully or just try and come up with my own um i think a lot of my monster design is pretty much just like taking the stat block or whatever of you know dragon or goblin or whatever it happens to be and then coming up with something creative for them to do yeah um i'd say pathfinder also went the same route as fourth edition for monster design where they have a lot of different things but there's still a theme that unites them with the the goblin tactics for example yeah, I like that. It, it kind of means, you know, your players know what they're expecting if they see a goblin, but maybe not exactly what they're going to do, which yeah, yeah. which seems much more interesting than, you know, the, the default 5e kind of dragons always breathe something at you and that's kind of it. Um, well, I brought up Pathfinder specifically is that uh, Pathfinder has a SRD that's freely available. Um, fourth edition does not. Oh, of course, uh, yeah. That's what makes it a bit harder to to get into and run is they decided to not have a freely available one. And I'd say another issue with 4th edition compared to the other editions is that because of the way the classes work, it's very hard to create like new archetypes or something like that for classes just because they're so much more complex. Oh, I see. Because if you've got a lot of choice of like short rest and long rest powers, right, you've got to come up with a lot of choices or is there something else? Yeah, for, for each level, there's four different powers at a minimum for selecting. And that's not including the extra books where they released stuff. Oh, wow. Okay. So if you wanted to design a new class, uh, you need to do four powers for every level. So even if you're just doing like the first 10 levels, um, that's it's not quite 40 because you're not getting a power every level, but still. It's I like that level of choice, though. I know at least one of my players, uh, you know who you are, that would love that level of customization yeah i don't know like 
Do you know what the kind of community response was to that level of of like customization and, and options as a player? People didn't realize how much that differentiates your character was the response um, from mm. what I've seen. Is that, um, I mean, for, for wizards, like there isn't really much more customization than other editions because you're always choosing spells. So yeah. if you're a spellcaster, it's kind of the same. Um, but if you're a, a fighter, it gives you a lot more choices in what you're doing. Yeah, because some, something I've noticed with my group, because we're at level like 16 now, um, which is a, a nightmare as a, as a DM. Um, I'm now realizing, but a lot of my martial players, like the rogues and the fighters and stuff like that, I've sensed a lot more frustration in them as we've gone to higher levels, both in their leveling it. Like when they level up, it's like, oh, cool. I'm better at that thing. I'm already good at. Um, but then also in the session, it's like, okay, I'm going to do the one thing that I'm able to do. Um, so it sounds like 4E does a lot of the. Uh, has a lot of solutions to address that is that kind of what what i'm getting from yeah there? yeah um so i'm gonna read off like a, a 15th level rogue power here uh slaying strike um it's a normal attack but it deals um, three times as much damage um and if the target is already bloodied or they've lost at least half their hit points um it deals five times as much damage and wow. um crits on a 17 or higher Okay, so it's like giving a, a lot more choice to the to the player, right? Yeah, um, that's just one power. There's, um, I mean, there's three that are listed in this book for that level. Yeah, there's probably more like twenty that you could choose from. Yeah, because my band aid solution so far um, has been a to give more creative magic items to the marshals, um, which is you know fine, and then b more recently. I've just given every martial class access to uh, battle master maneuvers, um, just so they can kind of do something other than I attack. Yeah, that's definitely something you can do to make it more interesting. Uh, another one here that's pretty interesting. It's the the same level. Um, you move your speed. Every enemy that can make an opportunity attack against you um, does so against itself. Oh, that's yeah. Okay, that's really cool. I I need to just steal these because these sound like really creative little rewards and stuff i can give to the players yeah a few of them are described on the fourth edition wiki um but uh they can't get into full detail on it because of like copyright stuff so yeah. it has like a description of what the power does but doesn't give exact stats on what it does okay yeah but, but that's it yeah that's enough for kind of inspiration for me to port it over though i guess so yeah exactly um so like these become more situational. Like the the moving one is good when you're surrounded by a bunch of enemies, but um, not so useful when you're fighting like one big dragon or something. Um, but the the slaying strike one is very useful against a dragon because it's got a huge amount of hit points. So the extra damage is much more relevant. Yeah. And then the like the score critical hit on a seventeen. Um, there's also a cleric power that lets you gives gives you advantage, which isn't as frequent in fourth edition where you where you get to roll twice um so that's also useful when you're critting on a 17 because then you have you know you double your chances of getting that 17 if you have advantage yeah so you you combo with the cleric and like give give me the the advantage blessing and then i'll attack with this um, yeah it's really cool but you have to choose which of those powers you're going to do but then you have a bunch of other powers that also let you like pick that so yeah, that's really cool. I think I just need to pl plunder those for for my martial players who are 
have uh, kind of expressed the the frustration of especially the rogues it's like oh every turn I, I guess i sneak attack again yeah uh, i mean it's that's that's still there you're still looking for <laughs> for combat advantage and flanking to get sneak attack um the what um fourth edition has is it has different roles there's um leaders which are like clerics who are healing people and buffing people there's um defenders which are like drawing attention and have high armor class so they're trying to get the monsters to attack them and not other people um there's controllers which are doing like area damage and then there's strikers which are like rogues that deal yeah. extra damage from some condition and uh all the strikers are basically just trying to trigger that extra damage that they get no however they can do that yeah i think like my main complaint um from a like battlefield role perspective with 5e has been like the lack of any real way of diverting attention to yourself mm-hmm. uh, like there's like what like two abilities or something like the the barbarian uh, uh, like the ancestor barbarian has the one where like if they attack someone while raging that target gets disadvantage against anyone else that it attacks yeah. and stuff like that but like they're so few and far between so i have to be really lenient with not lenient so much, but like when I can tell a player like really enjoys tanking or like wants to tank in a given session, like let letting their you know jeers to the enemies and stuff actually have an effect because right. they don't they don't have a mechanical way of doing it. Um, yeah, yeah. Fourth edition, fourth edition had marking, which let you um a defender marks an opponent, which gives that an opponent a minus two to attack other people, or you know, disadvantage because that's yeah didn't, didn't have that, but gives disadvantage to attacking other people. And also, if that target attacks someone else, the defender gets to hit them for free. Oh, that's really yeah. So stuff like that's really cool, and I think it'd be be nice to kind of provide some of those to my players. Yeah, uh, I think the, the battlemaster fighter basically still works that way. Yeah, they've got a couple there where you can do similar stuff, which I, I I'm, I'm hoping. Because we we've only had like one session since I introduced the marshals, uh, the maneuvers to everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm hoping over the next sort of few, we get a chance to see if if it improves the feel and the the kind of play style of of those martial characters. Yeah, I would be um, I'd be surprised if it didn't feel like a positive change. I hope so. <laughs> uh, well, I was going to ask you what the the name of your world was and like a, a physical description of it. That's usually how I start the episode. Yeah. Uh, so the I don't know if I've actually given a name to the whole thing. Um, just the all, region then. Yeah, fine. it all started in a country called Calgrad. I have no idea where that name came from. Um, it just kind of sounded nice. Um, and then the the kind of law has expanded. Um, you know, like in a video game where they only render what you can see or what you're about to reach. Uh huh. It's kind. That's kind of been my approach to world building. Um, there's some stuff which I've got like overall in my head, um, but some other, the rest of it's kind of been built as the players have encountered it. Um, at least the details of it. Um, but Calgrad exists on a continent. Um, it is the the wider continent has been barely touched in this campaign because Calgrad is like ringed by this impenetrable mountain range, um, which was an early campaign convenient plot device to stop people just going somewhere else. 
Okay. Um, but also to explain why um, the kind of politics of Calgary is so different to the rest of the continent, um, why they were able to get away with mass persecution of magic users, um, why they've never been invaded, why um, they don't need like a strong standing army and stuff like that. It's, it's just because it was so easy for them to defend themselves um, okay. that the, the kind of wider politics of the continent barely influences them. Um, which has had like interesting plot ramifications, of course. Um, so not much is known by the players about the rest of the continent, uh, except that the northern half of it is under like a regime run by the uh, Yanti, um, who have a similar history in my world as they do in regular Dindi. Um, but they basically overthrew. Uh, they were like a slave race and then overthrew their masters and now rule half of the continent. Um, All right. And I think that might come, you know, if we do like a little epilogue campaign, that might come because one of my players is now a, a Yanti, um, but from another reality, which I'll I'll get to in a second. Okay. Um, so yeah, like that was kind of the basic, it was very grounded campaign for like the first however many levels. Um and then we had a, a little bit of plane hopping, but to kind of custom planes. Um, the main villain is in service to um, a goddess of the moon and of pain. So I took them to a pain dimension, which was where this villain was keeping prisoners and stuff. Um, and they were going to rescue an NPC in the pain dimension. Um, and then, you know, we had some like random sort of dement like custom planes or dimensions that we called them. Um, I mean, as players have got abilities which more explicitly reference planes, like the astral plane and stuff like that, um, I've tried to incorporate some of the standard D&D cosmology in. Um, where it gets weird is how I've handled time initially. I'm going to try really hard to remember what the players know and what they don't, because one of my players is obsessed with the time subplot, so I don't want to spoil anything for them. Oh, yeah. Um, but basically, there's some weird stuff going on with timelines where... They've seen like the corpses of an NPC who is still alive somewhere, um, holding like an object which they normally have, and they've like some of them have seen their own graves, um, and they've met characters from other timelines. So there's something weird that they don't know exactly what's going on with time, but there's something weird going on with time in this universe. Um, and then to add like another dimension. Like layer of dimensionality to it. Um, we've got all these planes which exist in what I guess D&D refers to as the multiverse. You know, you've got your astral plane, your heavens, your hells, your, you know, all that, all that right, stuff. Right. Um, and then um, what I've got is something which I call the multi-reality, where each multiverse is one reality. Um, and then there are like other, in the sort of standard, you know, time travel film, version of reality where every decision that's made there's another reality where the opposite decision was taken okay so there's like an infinite set of realities um, and sort of the larger plot which they're slowly unveiling is that there exists some entity that lives outside of all these realities that is trying to collapse them all into nothingness um and they're using the reality in which the plot takes place as their kind of foothold to do that um and this initially started as an excuse for me to, well um the kind of multi-reality hopping was an excuse for me to introduce 
two new characters. We had a, a, a player joining late and we had a character that died. So the player needed a new one. So we brought in two characters who have crossed realities, um, which was a fun excuse for them to have like a background completely unrelated to the in-universe lore. Well, I've I've always felt you need to do something like that when you have high-level parties. Yeah. Because there's always this question of well, why isn't this this high-level person, why weren't they doing something before where the players knew about them? Yeah, exactly. And I think, like, to an extent, I've been able to use, like, the isolated nature of this country to explain away, like, hand wave away a lot of that. Um, but yeah, at level 16, it made so much more sense to be like, oh, these are two guys from another reality, and they're being put here because this reality is becoming a threat to all of them. Um, so yeah, I've kind of got this sort of friendly... I don't know how um, Marvel-educated you are. Uh, I've I've watched most of it, so... I'm, okay, so I'm are good. you familiar with The Watcher? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah so I've got a... The, from the, the, the What If series. series. Yeah. yeah, that one, yeah. So I've kind of got like a, a Watcher stand-in who... You know, doesn't doesn't intervene, but he observes. I've called him the other, um, and he kind of dropped these two characters in the new one. And also, um, another group of characters were in a, a place where they couldn't teleport, but they needed to, and they got these high level NPC wizards to send them through, like a t- like a kind of tunnel around their reality. So they went into this sort of liminal space between realities, and then back out yeah. again in reality, and also met the other. Okay, so that's um, separate from the astral plane, which is usually the space between different yeah, so, planes, because this is between different yeah, so super each, planes or whatever. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good way of looking at it. So each each uh, super plane, uh, and each super plane is kind of like a, a quasi like mirror image of each other. Like they have the same, like each super plane has its own material, astral, um, nine hells, heavens, blah, blah, blah. Um, right. And they are kind of similar, um, although they are distinct to the timelines. Uh, they're not like a different timeline; they're a different reality. Because um, I don't want to reveal too much here, but the, the timelines are working slightly differently. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, I guess that's kind of the big picture of, of how it's how it's working. A lot of it is kind of, um, you know, that uh, scene in Wallace and Gromit where Gromit's laying the tracks in front of the train that he's riding. Yes. Um that's kind of how a lot of the world building's been done in this. Um I'm a very like improv heavy DM mm-hmm. where what'll kind of happen is something'll come up in a session that I wasn't necessarily 100% expecting. Or like maybe I'll have a vague idea of something but in session a character will be like what's the concrete answer to this question and I won't have a good reason not to give it to them. So I'll kind of improv one on the fly and then have to go back and make it fit with everything else I've done. Well, um, I, I think that almost means that you're doing less work because you don't have to do things that your players aren't seeing exactly, as much. Exactly, exactly. And there's some things which I've had to do to prep, like, just so I know what I'm going to do if it does come up. But generally, <laughs> this kind of retroactive fitting, you know, sometimes it doesn't, it, it's like coming up with the bits I kind of prep are the bits which are needed to make whatever I said in the session make sense with everything else the players know. Because sometimes I'll say something and they're like, oh, that's a contradiction because of this other thing that we know. And quietly I'm like, oh, shit, yeah, you're right. But, um, you know, not to pull back the uh, veil too much, like part of what makes me go on and, and design other things is like what what must be true for these other two things the players know 
to also be true um which is where quite a, quite a lot of the fun um truths about this world from my perspective have kind of come out um where the players kind of push me in a direction where, which i hadn't really expected them to go mm-hmm. um which is part of the joy of it from from my perspective at least no i've i've liked that um i've been doing my campaign for a while and i've um there's been a few inconsistencies that have popped up, but I also know that I, I also want to do a time travel campaign at some point where the players <laughs> are hopping around different times and I'm like keeping track of the inconsistencies and being like, okay, so they have to, they have to fix this one as like a mission or something. <laughs> That's a really good idea. Yeah. Maybe at the end of the campaign, it was be like, oh, if you guys find any plot holes, because your, your next job is to fix them. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm sad. I mean, we've got a, the the session where a lot of the time stuff is going to become unveiled in like a week and a half's time. Uh, I'm kind of sad it didn't happen before this podcast, so I could could talk about it in more detail. But uh, that's all right. There's always going to um, be something that's like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, how do the the gods work in that setup? Because I, I'd assume that they're somewhat aware of that or not. Yeah. So um, each super plane, if we're going to stick with that word has its own set of gods and deities um so the gods generally are not aware of the plane above them um or the super plane multi-reality above they they only know as far as they are aware they are the greatest thing in their universe or multiverse okay and what gods are you using are you using like the the typical like dawn war greyhawk faroon ones it's been a bit of a mix actually like um the first so um the kind of crown the state of calgrad was a monotheistic um almost pseudo-christian religion okay um and they kind of saw any other even though they in like a they knew obviously that other gods existed but they saw worship of it as heresy okay um so most of the play- for a long time the players didn't encounter any religion other than um this kind of pseudo christian one um that changed when we got our first cleric player who joined like partway through um and he wanted to worship um like one of the celtic gods um i think they're called tyrannus um which is as a lot of pagan religions did have sort of gods which are very similar to other ones um the one that's more or less a thor standard yeah i remember it from austerix and obelix ah okay of course uh that might actually have been the inspiration for this player um but uh yeah so we had that and then we had um an npc who actually was a player a, a character i played in another campaign which died after a few sessions and i wanted to kind of take my young naive viking character and sort of age him up a few thousand years as this sort of immortal timeless father figure okay um who'd kind of been through thousands of years of of conflict and growth and it it was my way of being like where will that stupid character i played end up um and it was supposed to be just sort of a cameo for my friends that were in that campaign like one of my players was the dm for that campaign Uh, um but then, like, one of the other players uh, kind of, uh, you know, said, like, oh, how will I ever contact you again? And um, this guy, his god in, was the um, Viking god of the sun, Oda. 
Um, so I've kind of shoehorned a lot of Viking mythology into this campaign because uh, this player kind of asked, how will we ever see you again? And he kind of jokingly said, because his thing is all like fire and light and stuff. He said, oh, you know, um, light the biggest fire the continent's ever seen and I'll come running. <laughs> oh, oh, Coincidentally, no. um, the villain of set fire to a city um, and... Uh, there was like this really emotional moment where like there was this character betray the, the big betrayal where the, the runaway character came back and killed a player. Um, the villain set fire to the city at the same time. So this big climax was going on all at once. And um, the player who like, you know, asked uh, this NPC, like, how will we find you again? Uh, she was kind of fleeing the scene. She'd failed to save um the character that had died like she tried to but hadn't managed it and was flying away she was a druid she turned into like an eagle and flew away okay and kind of landed and i kind of thought to myself oh that that is the biggest fire the continent would have ever seen um and it was just this lovely moment where like they they'd had this attachment to this npc and then were in this like deep emotional pit and like landed by themselves in the forest and was like on their knees crying and i thought like this is it and i just had uh, a hand offered to them uh, and this character said oh when I said the biggest fire the continent has ever seen this wasn't quite what I had in mind um, and helped them to their feet and then has since been like a mentor to that character um, and, that's a really and, nice moment yeah it was, it was really beautiful and like, well, at least I thought so uh, and they've kind of brought this character under the wing and, and now this druid is like um, serving the same god um, the god of the sun um, but then I've also kind of shoehorned a lot of Viking mythology where this character has explained that um, while he calls the gods Odin and Thor and uh, Odin and whatever, they're just kind of his names for the same things. Uh -huh. um, so he explained that uh, the cleric's god Tyrannus um, was the god that he called Thor and that they were the same person. And then like the cosmology, like it's essentially the Viking pantheon, but by any other name. Like, okay. it, it's not necessarily truly Viking because he's no more right in worshipping them in the way the Vikings did than anyone else is for worshipping them in their own ways. Yeah, I've got a bit of that in my campaign too um, with uh, the, the equating gods as other ones is called syncretism. Oh, that's a good word for it. I like that. Yeah, like Thor is Zeus and um, Turinos and uh, I don't know, probably many others. Yeah. So like I we, yeah I had this lovely thing and then you know um, from this NPC, NPC's perspective Odin is like like all these gods are just one fragment or one aspect of Odin the Allfather which you know diverts from actual Viking mythology um, and that Allfather figure is actually what um, the other name for what this like pseudo Christian religion were were actually worshiping like it's the same god just by another name ah okay. Um, so that's kind of the yeah, like, and then we've had like the the biggest kind of gods influence we've had on the campaign is the villain worships this goddess of the moon, and obviously we've now got one of the players worshiping the god of the sun, and so the the climax of the campaign, which is coming soon, and the players know this, this isn't a spoiler, um, is going to be an eclipse, where the kind of plot is that the reason the goddess of the moon is also the goddess of pain was because she and the sun were once lovers, um, oh. and then split apart, and then. At the eclipse, they're going to be together again. Um, and the villain wants to do something, which I'm not, I can't reveal. Um, 
but both the villain and this player who worships the sun are going to become more powerful. So the villain's going to have like death flowing through them, and the player's going to have life flowing through them. So I'm basically giving them one free cast of true resurrection, um, which I'm really interested to see because I, I, they've they've kind of been plotting as a group about who they're going to resurrect, whether it's like a player that's died or an NPC that might be important or like. Um, Maybe they're going to resurrect someone to like serve them in the moment, or like you know they're they're debating this now. Um, yeah, and then at, during the eclipse, um, this meeting of the the god of the sun, the god of the moon, goddess of the moon, um, the NPC that worships them is going to ascend into heaven as their like, it's like the the sun and the moon giving birth to a new god, which is going to be this NPC. Oh, okay. uh, which is his excuse for not just solving all the party's problems. He's busy preparing to ascend to the heavens okay um, that's, that's a good reason yeah which kind of gives him this excuse to kind of be more like a, a gandalf figure of kind of mentoring and and helping the party succeed but by their own merits um yeah and it is i'm gonna be sad to see him go he's one of my favorite npcs so but um the, the eclipse session is likely to be our final one um depending on what happens um so do you have Yggdrasil and all the other like nine realms, or is that? Uh, they've not come up yet. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they do in some way come up. Um, yeah, no one's really pried too deep into the. Excuse me. Um, into the uh, the other realms. Like the the people have been to other planes and other dimensions, but. Um, no one's really questioned the mechanics of getting from one to the other and the influence the god like, no one's really thought about what what the gods do to other places other than um you know the heavens and the hells and the material all right but yeah something something i'd like to explore maybe um because i'm planning on once this campaign's over maybe running small like one shots and stuff in the same setting um and maybe giving players a chance to explore stuff they didn't didn't see so much of during this campaign Cool, cool. Um, so you're planning on the like you're at level sixteen, so th this is like the the climax of a long campaign for the. Yeah, I think levels. like my, the reason I'm kind of stopping at sixteen is I I didn't want to have to try and balance around ninth level spells, um, except by like magic item where they're like single use. Um, uh, yeah, it does become quite different at that point. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I found it hard enough balancing around teleport, let alone everything else the players have access to at the moment because any sense of like because initially when players were like traveling by foot or horse or bird tracking their separate timelines and saying you know these characters are over here and these characters are over here was quite easy um but finding like plot contrivances why player a can't just teleport into player b's session midway through has been quite difficult um yep because i had the the same problem when I was running high level third edition stuff. Yeah, um, the players got up to the twenty fourth level, and uh, there oh, wow. was a, quite a stretch where it was like, okay, well, you know, to challenge them, I just need to to kill them. Um, <laughs> like it's no longer like I'm trying to like knock them unconscious. I'm just gonna like kill that player and that player, and then you know they win the fight and they resurrect them. Um, <laughs> yeah I've, I've i've done quite well i think of making resurrection quite rare or difficult um the villains have a habit well the, the intelligent villains have a habit of um decapitating corpses and stealing the body mm -hmm. um 
and I've just made the diamond economy quite quite rough. Um, so they can kind of find enough for like revivify, but no one's managed to get off anything bigger than that so far. Gotcha. Um, and I think the players have liked that. They, 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 I've kind of been told by them they like the stakes of of death being mostly permanent, um, even if not always. Yeah, I've, uh, in my my current campaign, I did something similar where um, people don't really trust people that have been resurrected because you, you're making all these like. Uh, oaths until I die kind of things. Ah, uh, that's clever. Uh, so then, like, dying means you're no longer bound by your oaths, so this person isn't really trustworthy anymore. Ah, yeah, that's a really clever little mechanic. No one's died yet, but... Uh, so. <laughs> Are any of the players married in-game? In uh, yes, one of them is a king, so he's... Um, He's a polygamist because that's what the the culture is. Um, so, will uh, if he dies and is resurrected, will they have their titles go to their heirs or? Uh, uh, like within the culture, he probably wouldn't accept resurrection. Like if he died, okay. we would have it. Yeah, it would go to his heirs, um, which would be a a whole thing because he has a few different titles. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, he's like uniting a bunch of different orc tribes, and he's the king of the orcs. Um, so yeah, yeah, I'm not, I'm not quite sure what would happen, but um, <laughs> he's he's also extremely difficult to kill. I've tried. <laughs> uh, I gave him a magic item that lets him like stay conscious while he's at negative hit points. Okay, similar to like the zealot barbarian from Five E, right? Yes, yes, very similar. Uh, and because uh, when you spend a healing surge in combat, you you heal from zero for that amount. Um, oh, so even it doesn't matter what negative they go to, they still come up. Right. From, yeah. From so uh, you know, I smack him down to like negative twenty or something, and he's still kicking. Um, and then <laughs> he gets a heal, and he's back at thirty hit points from some good healing. Ah, <laughs> uh, nightmare. Not, not sure about the exact numbers on that. You, you get the idea. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, getting back to your campaign, um, what are the, the different races like in your campaign? Is it mostly like standard elf, dwarf, human, halfling kind of yeah, stuff? Yeah, that's an interesting one. We started with the pretty standard like human, um, dwarf, elf, half-elf kind of vibe um, because the, the setting, Calgrad, the country... Um, a lot of their fear, like it's a human country, and they're like fiercely uh, xenophobic to to other races, well, racist, mm. I guess, to other races. Yeah, um, thing. Yeah, so it kind of like tied into that plot, and like, um, you know, they weren't like the non-humans weren't allowed into certain bars, or like, um, they couldn't like have free like reign of the country without being checked. They had to like go to an immigration center and be registered and stuff like that. Um, and then as the campaign's gone on, like we've now had this like successful revolution of magic users. And while the, the population are still quite biased and, and prejudiced, um, the new government is actually run by one of the player's old characters, um, oh, cool. who was a half-orc barbarian, the half-orc impulsive barbarian. Um, the player wanted to retire the character, and he was the one that killed the king. Um, so what I had happen was basically the uh, the, the crime gang 
um, he was kind of a part of in his backstory, kind of stepped in after the revolution to keep the peace um, and have like installed this guy as the king of the, of the realm um, and have kind of strong-armed their way into, into power. Okay. Um, which is a fun little politics subplot, which the players have kind of danced around a little bit um, because these guys are sort of quote-unquote allies of the players. And are kind of there as a, as a business arrangement. They're making tons of money, like lending gold to the Majors Guild and stuff like that. Okay. Um, and uh, have installed this this king as the the king by right of conquest. Um. Yeah, but the the populace themselves are still quite prejudiced, and the players actually have done some good work to like get over this. Like they had a whole subplot where two of my players. Uh, found the editor of the Calgrad Gazette um, and like talked her into printing news stories that kind of painted our players in positive light and talked positively about magic users and other races and stuff. Um, and so they're trying to win public opinion like that way and they've seen some effects, but ultimately a lot of these people are kind of countryside, backwards racist characters, um, okay. common folk. Yeah. What's the line from Blazing Saddles, like the clay of the earth? <laughs> yeah, something like that. Um, and then now, like, now, especially with people coming in from other realities, we've got some more wacky races, like the, the Yanti. Uh, one of my players is true polymorphed into a succubus. Um, Wonderful. Which has been great. They're, yeah, I think they're a bit fed up. They, they rolled as a strength build, like strength mountain dwarf, back when we didn't really... It was like just a silly little drinking game we were playing at Christmas. Right. And then as the campaign got more serious, they were like, oh, hey, actually, I'm kind of fed up with this build. Like, can we find a reason for me to become a dex fighter? Um, and I was like, oh, you know, like, why don't you speak to the guy in the Majors Guild? Like, maybe you can do some quests for them and, and they'll turn you into something else. Um, and he decided he wanted to be a sex demon um, in true new to pen and paper RPG player form. Uh, so he said, yeah, sure, why not? All right. Um, and it's it's not been as disruptive as that sounds actually to the plot. It's been played very like he plays it very straight, which is good. Um, well, I mean, he's not like natively a sex demon. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, it's been really good actually. It's been it's added some kind of fun to the to the plot where, um, you know, other character, other NPCs and stuff will kind of remark on his race and, um. We'll have some interesting conflicts where the, the racist common folk are like inexplicably attracted to this creature they hate. Um and stuff like uh, that. So Does he copy the um the shape shifting powers too? I, I think no, he doesn't usually work that way. Yeah, so he can he can we kinda like hand waved they were like level seven or something when we did this. So we kinda hand waved some of the true polymorph rules. So he doesn't have like the exact abilities of a succubus. Um, we just kind of changed his stats to a bit, bit more dexy and a bit more charismatic, and then gave him the, uh, the flight speed, and let him switch between, um, human or, um, demon form, um, as well as as well as the, um, kind of gender sex polymorph switch, um, which has come in handy in a couple of social situations where, you know, they figured this character will be more charmed by a. A man or a woman. Yep. Um, that's yeah, a, been, that's one of the been, cool ways to bring in like non-magical item rewards. Is not necessarily a, a transformation, but some sort of granted power like that. I like doing that. Yeah, exactly. I think I've tried to give my players a lot of them. Like, 
um my character that got really into the the viking god of the sun um they had one eye and so i had the npc like replace their missing eye with like a permanently burning fire which they can use to get like true sight and stuff like that oh cool um yeah so there's been some fun little i i try to give like fun little rewards where i can um, i think it's also a neat way of changing the archetype like that where like there's a a, a larger transformation like if a character wants to switch from strength to dex fighter like you said yeah it was it was a nice like because back then especially i was like I, I really want changes to kind of fit the narrative in some way um and that's kind of been my, my approach to multi-classing as well like i haven't really minded it as long as you can find some justification for your character so it had a um a warlock that wanted to multi-class into sorcerer and so we like found some way to unlock some innate power within them rather than just explaining it through like hand waves. Mm-hmm. I did have a question about like could you go into more detail what it's like running for, for ten people? Like that's a, oh, it is a the lot. bane of it is the bane of my life. Um so the sessions where we actually have everyone in, which are thankfully few and far between, are a nightmare. Um, just in the especially with online play it's very easy and natural for players to kind of switch off um, because there's nine other people taking it in turns in the spotlight and you know you know people don't want to interrupt to say they're going to go make a coffee or you know go to the toilet and they kind of miss people switch off and it's kind of natural especially in combat when we've got 16th level players some of whom aren't to be honest, that familiar with the rules. Combat takes a long time. Um, so my solution to that has just been kind of avoid it as much as possible, uh, except for kind of climactic scenes, um, which kind of either play out off screen. Like I, like we had a big funeral scene lately. I just kind of played that out off screen, asked everyone what they wanted to do at the funeral, and then I wrote up like a very, very long funeral like pro, bit of prose as if it was a short story like explaining what happened at the funeral okay that's nice um which is nice i had a really long flight i was actually going to san francisco i had a long flight with nothing to do so i, was like, I wrote it on there oh, okay. um but then the real challenge has been like tracking each little subgroup on their little quest and like figuring out where they are in the timeline and how long each thing they do takes and finding a good plot reason to like maybe tie up one group for a bit so that I can schedule in some other groups. And all of my friends have very, very different personal lives and work lives and schedules. So some players can only play like two or three times a year, whereas others want to play twice, two or three times a month. Uh And so finding a cadence where like people are grouped in the right way where I can schedule, um, schedule everyone at a, at a pace they, they are happy with. Um, but on the flip side, it's been really fun in the, because uh, everyone likes different things about the game like some people are really into the social side and the larger plots some people are really into like the dungeon crawls and the combat some people are really into like the exploration and stuff like that um so i've been able to to kind of tailor each session like say they, they go to this dungeon i can make the challenges that are found within kind of catered to the players that are in that session mm-hmm. um which has been really fun like I really enjoy that side of DMing and seeing the different ways that each individual approaches maybe the same problem. Um, 
And yeah, I've also been able to reuse a ton of stuff because they don't know what the other players are necessarily facing. Oh, so I, okay. I can just lift and shift like half a dungeon um, and kind of just change the, the plot that they find in that dungeon. Have you, have you heard about the Quantum Ogre? Yeah, there's a there's been a bit of that. I, I you know I try not to reveal quite how much quantum ogring is going on. I was gonna but, say it sounds like a quantumly entangled ogre. Where it's, yeah, it's not just um, wherever you go, it is. It's like there there's two of them in there. <laughs> yeah, it's uh you know Sch- Schrodinger's ogre or something. Yeah, yeah. So it's 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 been good from like a like the kind of filler content. I I can just reuse. And then it's only the kind of set pieces or like the one-off villains or kind of more interesting plot sets need a bit of custom work. Okay. Um, But it's been really good, especially with everyone so busy. Like not everyone has time to play twice a month. So yeah, but they still want to be a part of it. And it's been a nice way of handling that. So you guys play online. Are there enough people in... Uh, around london for you to play or it depends who yeah like we it depends who's in the session we mostly play online because we're on roll 20 mm-hmm. um it's kind of helpful for everyone to have their character sheet and the like tokens and stuff because we, we tend to use battle maps for combat encounters right um but you know if, if everyone's around and the kind of schedules work out we, we do do occasional in-person sessions um i'm definitely hoping to do the big climactic finale in person like maybe over a weekend or something um but yeah like, i really enjoy the input the, the in-person ones as well especially for like dialogue heavy sessions where i'm you know just just playing npcs all session and there's no real combat those are much more fun to do in person yeah i definitely agree with that but yeah it's been it's been all right doing this kind of hybrid mishmash um, we're almost all in London, except for one of our friends who's in Newcastle, um, which by US standards is not very far away. It's like a three-hour journey. Yeah. But for, yeah. a, for a Londoner, that's a world away. So It's not enough to do that, uh, like for a, very often. For that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like m- most of the time online, just for convenience, like you know, we've all got work and we live in different parts of the city and stuff everyone's got to get home afterwards so yeah um yeah, but yeah it, being it, like both in london you can still live an hour away from each other yeah i mean like i don't know what it is about the city but like there's no no such thing as a journey that takes less than 45 minutes um <laughs> so getting to someone's house and then back is like an hour and a half of your evening gone on on travel so well i mean part of having a density like, like that is that it's also not designed to have quick car travel you don't have like freeways that are within the city for getting around like we do. yeah i mean n- none of us i mean actually only one of us owns a car anyway we're all uh bus tube um public transport's all right here it's, it's very easy like you can get anywhere it's just like you might have to wait a little while mm, yeah but yeah no so mostly online to answer your question more directly for comparison my commute is 20 minutes by car but it would be like uh, an hour and 15 minutes if i was taking public transport Wow. Okay. Yeah. I uh, I either get the bus or cycle to work, and it takes me twenty five minutes either way. Anything else you wanna wanna touch on today for your campaign or D anD D related stuff? I mean, I wanted to give my players a big shout out. I won't list them all because there's too many of them. Um, but I think uh, actually something you might have something to say about. Um, I really found over the like pandemic, like it's a very difficult time for everyone. 
Um, you know, I don't know about my players, but definitely for me, like I found having like this regular campaign that was like this this fixed, unchanging, interesting and enjoyable part of my life, like really did help me get through those couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and even now, like when I'm going through like a difficult time, like it's nice to have like this big creative work that I'm working on with my friends. Um, and I think it's something that doesn't really get talked about that much in the D&D community, at least as far as I've been aware of like this, this is a really lovely way to like get together creatively and, and make something with your friends. Um, in addition to being a great way to, you know, spend three hours shooting the shit with your mates. Um, yeah. So I just wanted to thank my players really for that. I mean, I know they're listening. Um, so thanks to those guys for helping me through the pandemic and letting me be the center of attention for a few years. Um, I know they know I love. So thanks guys. Um, yeah, I don't know about you. What was your situation with the like D&D through the pandemic? Like, did you manage to get, get much in or was it kind of put on hold? Um, I had a similar setup to you where my group had met up actually in um, middle school, not high school, but still um, we'd been playing since we were kids and we split up um, when we all went to, to college. Um. Mm. So that's that's pretty much the same. Um, and when we split up, we started using not initially roll twenty. Initially, I had the same miniatures we were playing with, and I was pointing my my video camera at them um, <laughs> and moving them around, uh, which was obviously terrible compared to roll twenty. So that switch was very welcome. Um, uh, so we we did that, and uh, yeah, that nothing really changed much for our sessions when uh, uh, COVID started. It was just like we we kept going um, because we weren't meeting in person, so it was fine. Um, We did have to cancel like or or move our 20th anniversary session we were planning. Oh, wow. Um, Because, you know, we didn't want to meet in person to avoid any accidental spread, even if we were all symptomless. Um, So we had to to reschedule that. And we've since had that. It was was a fun time. we try to get together in person once a year. Um, That's really cool. So are you guys still quite distributed then? Um, not so much. Let's see. Um, we've currently got uh, three of us are in the Bay Area. I'm a two-hour drive away. Um, so we could have four people in the same place. And then we have <laughs> another person that's over in um, Arizona right now and another one that's in um, New Hampshire. Okay. Um, so the the those ones are pretty spread out on different time zones, which makes playing a little bit more difficult. <laughs> um, and obviously, the in person stuff usually that we do once a year has um, doesn't include them as often anymore. Um, so, so have you been have you been dungeon mastering for the whole twenty years, or have uh, been taking interns? Uh, initially, it was. Um, my my friend's dad was the the first DM, and then um, my my dad was the DM after that, um, and then I took over uh, after we'd been playing for about three years. So when I was twelve, I wouldn't say I was the only DM, but I, I've been the main DM since then. Yeah, um, but we've occasionally done other stuff. And my friend's dad has actually come back now as one of the players and one of the DMs for a little bit. Oh, that's really sweet. Yeah, uh, that's cool playing with him again. You think it was? Uh weird for him you know if he was initially dming if my maths 
checks out DMing for nine year olds and yep. then coming back and being DM'd by <laughs> you guys afterwards. Yeah. Um no, he's just, he's having a good time with it. He's playing uh uh he's playing an older character as well to try and sort of have that be <laughs> consistent. Um he's playing a cleric of Ares. I mean I just like great gods from my campaign. Um Yeah. And, that's really cool. Uh, yeah, I think it's it's fit in really well. There hasn't really been much of a transition that's necessary, um, besides keeping the the group chat a little bit cleaner. <laughs> we, we use Discord for connecting up for our games. So. Yeah, I, I don't think I'd uh, ever want to invite one of our parents to the <laughs> to the group chat. Yeah, um, we actually made like a, a separate Discord server, so we wouldn't have to like delete all of our old. <laughs> we have um. Names. So we've got like a we we mostly use like we use Discord for the calls, but then like we have Facebook Messenger for like just chatting about stuff. Mm. And we have like one big group chat with everyone in the campaign, and then we have like each session or group for group of sessions has its own like sub chat. Um, and we've got this lovely little tradition. Sorry, it's actually a bit of a tangent, but um, please mind. No, that's fine. Go for it. Um, we have this lovely tradition where after every session. Um, everyone shares in the main chat what we call D&D memes with no context okay. where someone will try and post something that only the group that was in the session will find funny but that will look as bizarre as possible to anyone that wasn't in the session okay, the, yeah I remember there was this like new meme that came about which was like the summarize a movie plot with no context, trying to do like four <laughs> pictures that like, if you'd watch the movie it made perfect sense but without watching it yeah, like... it's like exactly like that um and so we've had we've had some really really funny stuff come out of that and it's it's always like a lovely post session buzz for a few days where everyone's like coming up with funny memes or like um kind of bathing in the afterglow a little bit that's cool um yeah if uh, anyone listening is looking for a a benefit of having a an enormous number of players uh, i'd say that's one of my favorites um just a bit of advice for how I've also used the the Discord um, server for our um, our gaming is that it's also very useful to like do schedule tracking for people. So we have a, a channel that's just for scheduling, um, and after each session, I'll put like when the next session is, and there's lo- these little reactions people can do to a message on Discord, and like you put like a smiley face or something. So I'll put like a time and a date and people can put like a thumbs up or a thumbs down for whether they can make it. See, that would work great, except my friends are bad enough at checking like their text messages, let alone Discord. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've I've tried to think about um, different approaches. Over the four years, I've tried a few different scheduling approaches and it turns out the most reliable one is just to keep annoying them until they give me an answer. Yeah, that, that ended up being the one that worked best for us. Is that um, <laughs> we, we also have a smaller group, so we can just be like, okay, so this works for everybody. I'll put it in the chat, and then we're still in that session. So then, like, yeah, true. everyone is there responds to it right away. Yeah, I think the the best we've got is um, when we have like these big uh, every characters in the same place moments. Uh, we 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 tried this time. Uh, thanks, yeah, as my player for coming up with this was we just created like a Google Doc where everyone listed like their characters' thoughts, what what plot lines they were interested in and where they'd like to go and what they'd be willing to do. And then everyone kind of just assigned themselves to the subgroups and said, oh, I'm interested in this plot, we'll all do that, we'll do this, and blah, blah, blah. And then we just kind of, I worked with each group to kind of pick a time for their session for their sort of subplot. Mm. 
that's kind yeah. of how it goes generally speaking um because we kind of have this pattern where like everyone goes off and does a subplot and then they all kind of meet back in the the major guild basically right well i think that's also just important for like you as a dm to have that knowledge because then you can yeah like you said prepare the session so that it's it's what that group would like and would be a good challenge for their skills yeah exactly it's like i, I need to know what you're doing and who you're doing it with um you don't want to have like a locked door when there's no rope to unlock it. <laughs> exactly do you have any um advice you want to give to other dms oh i mean i i mean i i don't know if i'm i feel prepared enough to give advice uh I think I would say over the past few years, uh, don't allow PvP unless you really, really, really know what you're doing. Um, that's one of my biggest lessons. Um, say no if more than five people try and join your group. Uh, remember that you need to have fun as well. Um, don't handhold your players as much as I have. Uh, I still have players that don't know what the difference between an action and a bonus action is. Um, most of them are great, but uh, some of them, some of them less keen on the reading the rule book. And remember, you're not the your job as the DM is to make the game, you know, design the levels, be the monsters, be the enemies, be the NPCs. Your job is not conflict resolver, babysitter, scheduler, note taker. I mean, it can be if you want, but you know, if 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 you're having issues with your players, you know, like you just speak to them like grown-ups, unless they're children, of course, because you might be a DM for children. Yeah. But yeah, like remember that your players have a responsibility to to make the game fun for everyone. It's not it's not just your job to bring the fun to the table. Um, everyone has that responsibility, and thankfully, my players are generally pretty good at that. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I guess that's more player advice as well. If you're a player, uh, it's your job as well. Go easy on your DM. He's got enough. They've got enough to think about. Um. But yeah, yeah. I, I guess that's all I've got in the way of advice. Nothing, nothing crunchy. But uh, well, I'd say uh, six people is a better, better limit for playing. Yeah, six works fine, especially if they know what they're doing. Yeah. Um. If you've got players that need handholding, stop at four. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I'd agree with that part. <laughs> uh, have you got any advice for me you know i'm i'm 24 and been dming for four years you've been dming a lot longer so uh if you've got something for me i'd, I'd love to hear it well i think you're uh the, the advice i usually give people when they're dming from what i've seen on um reddit at least uh for the modern dm community uh, D community is that there's this um refusal to acknowledge that the 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 fluffy parts of the game and the crunchy parts of the game are separate and don't have to be united um and the the, the crunchy part refers to like the mechanics so yeah. like you know a, a paladin gets smite and can use their their spell slots for smiting um and the fluffy part of the game is that a paladin is like a, a warrior that took an oath and receives power due to his like devotion to that oath um those don't need to be the same thing uh you could have a paladin that just as easily views himself as a a magician a wizard that is channeling power into his sword um and that he learned this technique from like his his 
guru master on in the mountains um and that there is no oath that he has taken that, that there is no power that's devoted to that oath it's just that he he learned a magic technique um yeah i like that it's good to have mechanically that it's the same character like it doesn't change how that character operates in your campaign at all but it um allows you a little bit more freedom in what you want to do for designing your your pc where you're no longer like paladin okay i have to have an oath it's just you know i want to be able to do these things in combat and have this type of character uh profile of like their their backstory and what they look like and all of that they can be completely separate yeah i completely agree i like that as advice thank you for that yeah i think i see that most often for paladins and warlocks where people are trying to like you know well how do you reason that the player gets this new pack to be a warlock and the answer is they don't, don't make a pack they're just <laughs> yeah. like they've they learn a new power and that's it yeah yeah i think i've I've come to agree with that over the years like i remember i said initially my multi-classing has been story driven but now when my favorite min maxer you know who you are um comes to me and says i want to play a a wizard with a one level dip in artificer so i can have armor uh i'm now just like yeah sure whatever like you're still a wizard it's fine yeah like, yeah you just practice using armor and you learned how to cast spells while wearing armor we're done it's yeah good. yeah and i think it's made things go a lot smoother because you know like you said players can just be what they want to be and not worry about gelling those things together yeah um it's fine to gel them together too like you don't want to yeah. prevent people from doing that but like it's just that that's the freedom of choice for that element is, I think, something that people often forget. Um, yeah. As Completely a DM, agree. you also have a lot more power in that. Um, <laughs> where, uh, you know, you, you need to... Um, I, I don't know. There's, like, a, a big uh, straw golem that's um, attacking people, and the players are like, well, let's set it on fire. Um, okay, then you change from using whatever stats you're using from the straw golem to now using a fire elemental stats. Yeah, that's really cool. You don't have to do anything new. You can just like, oop, okay, now I'm, this is going to represent what that does, and it's close enough, and it doesn't matter that it's not actually an elemental. It's just a golem that is on fire. Yeah, I am a big fan of uh, taking a stat block and changing the name at the top of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, going along with that also, like if the stat block doesn't quite work, like if you wanted to have it be, I don't know, an acid golem, um, you can just change the fire elemental to deal acid damage and be yeah, in acid just, damage instead of fire. It's the same thing. Yeah, I think it's it's so good as well to, for taking the legwork out of your DM prep. Like, don't reinvent the wheel. Just like take take something and modify it to to suit what you want to do. Yeah, I'm doing it all the time in fourth edition. <laughs> it's just like oh. Um... Like I got all these different orc tribes that I'm working with, um, and I don't want them all to just be orcs. Uh, so, for example, the the tribe that they're fighting the most often is a bunch of necromancers, um, and I'm most often using uh, gnolls as the the base yeah uh, mechanic. Um, so they're the endless autumn evil necromancer tribe is actually just gnolls. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a different one that was dwarves. There's another one that's hobgoblins. Um, so each of the orc tribes can have like a, a feel and an identity, but um, they're still like in game. They're all orcs. Are the, are the null orcs still uh, eating people, or 
Uh, no, that's, a, that's a different <laughs> tribe that does that. <laughs> um, that tribe is going to be giants, but I haven't gotten to that yet. Awesome. Um, yeah, uh, I think that's it. Um, anything else before we sign off? No, I'm. Uh, just want to say, yeah, massive thanks for doing this and and having me on. I, I you know, when I saw the the stuff on Reddit, I was like, that sounds like such an awesome idea. Um, really happy to be a part of it. And hopefully I've not spoiled too much for my players. Uh, if I have, you haven't heard anything. <laughs> Forget what you know. <laughs> so yeah, thanks very much. Yeah, thanks, Lloyd. Bye. Have a good day. Bye.